I'm Khalila Reynolds and welcome to Taking Stock. We're bringing you all the latest business news and telling you how it will affect you and your money. But before we get started, head over to my website, KhalilaReynolds.com to subscribe to our newsletter. You can click the link up here or in the description box below. Now, come on, let's get this money. First up, the BPO sector was one of the worst hit in the early stages of the pandemic. Following an outbreak of COVID-19 at the Alorica call center, some had to close temporarily and tight social distancing restrictions were imposed. But now, BPOs have pivoted and are doing well. CEO of ITEL BPO, Yoni Epstein, will tell us about his expansion plans in the region. And later, the analysts swain on the latest market developments. The GameStop short squeezes all the talk on the US markets. Their stock soared last week as Reddit users took on Wall Street. We'll break it all down. But first, here's What's Hot, brought to you by Jamaica Money Market Brokers, your best interest at heart. Canada has suspended airline service to the Caribbean and Mexico until April 30. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made the announcement recently in response to the ongoing pandemic. The news comes as a shock, particularly to Jamaican tourism sector operators who have been working to source antigen and PCR tests for travelers entering Canada, the United Kingdom and the United States, which have all implemented travel restrictions. Stakeholders are now hoping the U.S. does not take the same approach as Canada. In a statement reacting to Canada's decision, President of the Jamaica Hotel and Tourist Association Clifton Reader said they look forward to a robust private public sector vaccination program in Jamaica that will lead to the reopening of travel to and from those countries where travel has been restricted. Meanwhile, a business group is looking to sell COVID-19 vaccines to Jamaicans who aren't on the government's priority list. The coalition includes the Private Sector Organization of Jamaica, the Jamaica Manufacturers and Exporters Association, and the Jamaica Chamber of Commerce. The group told the Jamaica Gleaner that they've been looking into all aspects of partnership with the Ministry of Health and Wellness. Cygnus Capital plans to list its real estate financing company on the Jamaica Stock Exchange this year. Co-founder Beresford Gray made the announcement at the Jamaica Stock Exchange Capital Markets Conference last week. Gray said the new financing company is seeking to raise up to $20 million US dollars to invest in real estate ventures and projects. American brokerage firm GTS also plans to list exchange-traded funds or ETFs on the JSC. ETFs track an index or basket of securities on the equities market. Additionally, the Haitian-based financial services company Profin Group said they continue to work with the JSC for an eventual listing, but gave no timeline. Rita Humphreys-Lewin has resigned from the board of directors of Barita Investments, the company she established over 44 years ago. It's understood that Humphreys-Lewin resigned as a director for personal reasons. Two years ago, she sold most of her interest in the stockbroking and investment firm to Cornerstone Investments Holdings Limited in a takeover bid. At that time, it was decided that Humphreys-Lewin would remain on the board as a director for a minimum of six months to ensure a smooth transition. Humphreys Lewin was the first female chairman of a stock exchange in the Caribbean. She led the Jamaica Stock Exchange in 1984 and again between 1995 and 2000. Alliance Financial Services said its initial public offering IPO will remain suspended with the closing date extended until further notice. The IPO was launched in late December but suspended in early January while regulators explored an issue pertaining to a separate company held by Alliance's principals. 
It was originally slated to last until January 28. The IPO's initial opening date was December 28, with a closing date of January 11. Nearly $2 billion worth of holdings were put on offer by the founders to shareholders at $1.59. Restaurants of Jamaica plans to open two more KFC and two more Pizza Hut locations by the end of the year. This is expected to create about 170 new jobs. The announcement comes less than a month after the company completed its $130 million investment in Pizza Hut's Harborview location. That's the second location opened during the pandemic, the first being KFC in Junction, St. Elizabeth. ROJ says the areas targeted for 2021 expansion are St. Anne for both KFC and Pizza Hut, Westmoreland for KFC, and Kingston and St. Andrew for another Pizza Hut. ROJ currently manages 53 restaurants. Giscom's gym has become the latest to shut down for good due to the pandemic. In a notice, the 20-year-old fitness company told members that its monthly operational cost had been exceeding its monthly income for the past year as a result of the crisis which forced a fallout in attendance. It said it could no longer absorb losses. Spartan Health Club has also had to close indefinitely due to what it said was the extremely negative effect the pandemic was having on the financial operations of the club. What's Hot was brought to you by Jamaica Money Market Brokers, your best interest at heart. When we come back, we look at how one of Jamaica's leading BPO companies has managed to carry on with business and even grow in the pandemic. This segment of Taking Stock is brought to you by Bulwark Insurance Agent. Insurance made easy. And Massey United Insurance. How good is your insurance? Welcome back to Taking Stock. A calculated risk. Many business owners had to take one or several to keep their companies afloat during the pandemic. Well, this guest knows a lot about taking a business risk. He's expanded and he's now tripled his team size amid a global pandemic. We're talking about ITEL BPO CEO Yanni Epstein. He joins us now. Hi, Yanni. Happy New Year. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks, Kalila. How are you? I am pretty good myself. So BPOs, you guys were one of the first hit when the pandemic you know, came around. There was a whole thing about the Alarica call center in Portmore and there were all these restrictions and a lot of fingers were being pointed at BPOs. So before we come to what's going on with ITEL BPO now, take me back to March of 2020. What was it like for you in that sector? Well, you know, in many ways, it was almost like, you know, hour by hour, things were changing. You didn't quite know what you had to do or couldn't do in order to stay open. Um, so it was a bit frantic. Uh, it was definitely a, a lot of us were worried, weren't sure what was going to happen to our staff, our business, our clients. Um, but thankfully, when we got into the, to the meat of it, uh, we were able to, to work more closely with the government um, to build a set of protocols that would allow us to operate, whether it be at home or in center, um, to be able to keep our, our contracts, to keep our employees employed and to keep them safe, more importantly. So we know that BPOs are a very important sector of, to the economy because you bring in a significant amount of foreign exchange. But at the time, the sector was also blamed for in some instances, the spread because of close proximity of some of your workers. So how have you been able to address this and cope over the past several months? Well, you know, I think at the time uh, when 
this the, the, the Alorica situation happened. You know, it was the early days in COVID, and many people in the country uh, just didn't know what what to expect, what was going to happen. You know, what was going to be the fallout from it? More so nationally than anything else. I mean, as as we've learned over the last several months, you know, as long as you are following the protocols, you're washing your hands, you're socially distancing most importantly, wearing your mask, that you can actually live with COVID and, and, and you know, continue work and life uh, once you're following the protocols. And, and we all had to, to get down and dirty to make sure that we were, you know, helped to create a set of protocols that could work, uh, as well as monitor and maintain that these protocols are being uh, upheld on a day-to-day basis with your staff that were working on-premise. Was there any financial fallout at ITEL BPO? Yeah, I mean, in the first three months, talking, you know, April, May, June in particular, because really, you know, we had our first case in Jamaica, it was about the 15th of March, and it was early April when, when the Alorica case uh, came up. So, you know, we lost about 25% revenue in, in April, in May and June, was more about you know 15 to 18%. And then July, we got back to, to where we were uh, pre, pre-pandemic um, and been back on the growth, growth path since then. Did you guys have to close? No, we, we never closed. So, we, so never you just, closed. You we, we sent home, we sent home, I mean, at one point, over 80% of our staff were working from home. Now it's more like 50-50, mm-hmm. uh, but we never closed. Mm-hmm. But, so the revenue loss would have come from, explain how you, why you lost revenue then. So, you know, our, our business is, is spread across several different industries. Uh, and one of the industries that we support is the travel and tourism industry. Mm-hmm. So, you know, globally, as that was shutting down across the world, our travel clients, because they didn't have any business, they were shutting down the services with us. So that is predominantly where the, the loss of revenue came. When you saw, when, I, when, when, when the loss became less in, in May and June, some of our clients in the retail space and in the telecommunications space actually grew. So that helped to kind of buffer the loss somewhat until we got back to the summer when some of our travel clients started to, to build back their businesses on, online with us. And your company is growing. We're going to come to that very shortly too. But I'm, I'm curious about this transition because you say that sure. now about 50% of your staff is working from home. How are you able to do that? Technology, uh, essentially. You know, we have our team members that are, that are logging in from home. Uh, we give them the machines to take home. Most of, the, most of our team members didn't have their own machines. Plus, we wanted to make sure that it had the right speculations so that the the system would would, would work Uh, and two we wanted to make sure that we could apply our security uh, platforms to the machine so that we can monitor and make sure that you know the same level of of security our clients got in center they were getting when the agents were at home it's not an automatic thing or it's not as easy as some might have thought or as it may have been for other no. industries to just send your employees home and tell them <laughs> work from home because you all have some special provisions that guide the BPO sector. You fall under, I think it's a special economic zone. And so right. you've been lobbying for an extension of that. Explain where we are with that and how that, how that benefits you, why it's important. Sure. 
So, so at first, you know, we got the original approval to move everything out. And that's when we got 80% of the workforce at home. But, you know, as we moved on through the pandemic and we brought people back in center, because work from home doesn't work for everybody, right? So we can give you all the tools necessary on our side, but you have to have a certain level of, of stable internet access at your house for it to work. So what we learned over the period is that not, it didn't work for everybody. Not everybody had that stable internet access. So we brought them back in center. Um, but the SEZ and the Ministry of Finance and Customs, essentially, was the ones who gave us the, the short-term provisional approval to do this. Um, but we all, as, as we've been through this, much like yourself, we all thought COVID was, you know, it was a 90-day thing. And then it became six months. And now we're coming up to a year. And clearly... This work from home is going to essentially be with us for the long term. Um, whether that be, you know, 20, 30% of our workforce will always work at home or higher. Um, we have been continuing to lobby with the SEZ to say, you know what, let's create a long-term plan. You know, th this, this pandemic has taught us how important technology is for the growth of many businesses. And why not reassess our current guidelines and say, you know, we can have, you know, up to 40% of our, our staffing was working from home unless there's some national emergency and the government has a right to increase that. At the same time, to protect the real estate uh, community because they've invested lots of money to build space for the BPOs as the industry has grown over the years is that let's put a provision that we have to, we have to keep at least 80% of our workforce, a uh, facility to, to manage 80% of our workforce, even if 40% was gonna be working at home. So we didn't hurt the rental industry. The biggest thing are why we want to keep, um, we need this to, to happen is, is that under the Special Economic Zone Act, we have a certain level of financial um, benefits. Uh, you know, one of them is being able to bring in those same computers tax and duty free. Now, there is no tax on a machine, but there is duty at 21% on, on a machine coming in through, through the port. As well, we get fiscal benefits on, on income tax. Um, so we want to, because we're still providing the jobs, it's just happening at their house versus in the center. We want to be able to maintain those fiscal benefits because if we can't, the biggest problem more than anything else is that Jamaica will become un uncompetitive to the other countries that are providing these services and, you know, companies may, may end up leaving or transitioning jobs to other countries and therefore Jamaica would lose out of that pie. Mm. So how it works is that this special economic zone is a physical location. So it's where your call center would be located. And because you have people working from home now, it doesn't necessarily qualify as being part of the special economic zone space, that physical location That's anymore. So what right. you want is for, so it would be basically a virtual special economic zone? Well, so, so they don't like the word virtual, but, but yes, it, it, in, in essence, it is creating a virtual economic zone. But in many discussions we have said, we have suggested to, to them and, and the government in some, in some areas agrees with us that you know, you should tie the special economic zone license to the company. The company is the one who holds the liability and the responsibility of right, that license. Right, not the physical and location. Each time, 
Correct. And each time you add a new physical location, you should add that address mm. to your your license. But it doesn't mean that you the license is for that specific. It should be the company because the company is the one who's liable if they breach the um the act. Absolutely. So it should apply to to the work that is being done. Correct. So, but that's, what's that's what's how we see it. What's the opposition to this? So why have <clears> there <throat> been reluctance to accept that position? You know, I think that um, you know the special economic zone because of. I guess certain trade laws between the World Trade Organization um, uh, and OECD and, and things of that nature, it, it was always built for a predefined space and not in the virtual world um, from that aspect of things. I think that is the biggest hiccup. But, you know, we've seen many things happen, especially in this time as we've had to kind of, you know, ride and whistle and make things work well we're moving through this pandemic to keep people employed and keep the economy going that I think that there is a way to, to find it. And we just need to, um, to get together and work together on this. Uh, the SEC has their opinion. Um, we have always, there must be somewhere in the middle that we can meet uh, to say, this is in the, this is in a national interest. This is not about my interest or other, other operators in the industry. This is a national interest to keep business going and to keep the economy going in a time like this. Yeah, I think what the pandemic has done is it's shifted the way we think about a lot of things. And so where we may have thought about a special economic zone as this space, so much is being transferred to the virtual space now that I think the consideration ought to be given. But I know you have an uphill battle in, in, in getting the provisions that you want. But even with all of the challenges, Yanni, ITEL BPO has been able to expand. You've tripled your workforce during the pandemic. How do, what's going on? What, 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 what magic beans do you have over there? <laughs> well, well I, wish, I wish we tripled it across the group, but we tripled it um, in St. Lucia. So, so you know, part of, part of our, our goal has always been to diversify across the region. Jamaica is home. Jamaica is always going to be our, our biggest facility, not only because it is our home, but Jamaica has a critical mass, unlike other countries in the region. But what we have seen during this time, uh, uh, geodiversity uh, plays more important than it ever did in, in the role of a, of a client choosing a company to outsource to. So, you know, we, we had it on the cards from 2019 to actually expand into St. Lucia. And we signed an MOU with the government there in January of 2020 and started building a facility there. Things slowed up a bit because of COVID, um, but we were able to launch it in July 2020 with our first group of 30 employees. And our goal initially was to have 200 employees there, and then we kind of figure out you know, where we go next. But to this point here, end of January 2021, we have 450 employees hired in St. Lucia, and we'll have 750 by the end of March 2021 based on our business. Wow. How many do you have here in Jamaica? In Jamaica, we have, we have about 2,100 people. So 750 for a, a smaller island like St. Lucia is a lot. Yes. It, it yeah, is. In comparison. We, 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 in, the, in the BPO, they have about 2,500 uh, BPO jobs in St. Lucia, and currently we Total. have some 150 of that, yeah. And, and that's a, as a new entrant in just the past few yeah. months. 
So you've yeah. made a huge impact on the island of St. Lucia in terms of employment. We, we most certainly have. And, and you know, it has, it has been very good so far. All, all of those jobs that we've created are from existing clients. We haven't even started to open it up to new clients. So the biggest benefit to us in the pandemic with having St. Lucia in our arsenal is the clients in Jamaica said, you know what, we don't want to, to take away what we have in Jamaica, but we want to work with you because we like what we're getting from ITEL, but we want to put it in another country um, so that we have, you know, some protection in the event that there was, you know, with another natural disaster or, you know, COVID spikes in Jamaica, that we have some protection with our business with it being in another country for you. And that's the benefit that we have with an ITEL versus companies that are similar size to us. How many countries are you in now? We're in six countries. Jamaica, St. Lucia, Mexico, Bahamas, U.S., and Canada. What's happening with the Philippines? I heard a little birdie saying something. Well, you know, the Philippines is the largest market in the world for, for outsourced business. About 25 billion U.S. a year gets outsourced to the Philippines. But a lot of companies had all of their eggs in that basket or a large percentage of, of it in that basket. And with, with the pandemic and with the lockdowns and how, how things happen over there, it has made people um, realize that they need to spread themselves a little bit more thin um, and, and diversify their offerings to different geos as well as to different vendors to, to protect their business. So, you know, this region... Um, and I tell this is a this is a huge opportunity for us to continue to grow. So you know, whereas we have seen growth in Saint Lucia, we see growth in Jamaica. I mean, we have we have a, a, another building under construction right now in Kingston. Um, so we see a lot of great things ahead. But I really think this is an opportunity for Jamaica and the region to continue growing in BPO. So you're not looking to expand into the Philippines. No, not at all. I'm, oh. I, we're staying in this. We're staying in this hemisphere. This, this is home. We we understand this region. We think there's tremendous opportunities for achieve to achieve our goals and targets that we don't need to go and play in the Asia markets. Mm, I see. So, has the pandemic? Would you say has the pandemic been uh, more of an opportunity for BPOs than a threat to BPOs? I think I think what we're seeing in in the um, medium term here that this is definitely more of an opportunity than a threat. So we're seeing a couple different things. Um, number one, you're seeing what is happening globally, which is driving you know more virtual business. Uh, number two, we're seeing more companies want to diversify. Um, so that's taking business out of out of the Asian markets, bringing it to the near shore region. And number three you know, what is happening just economically, businesses still need to provide service. But, you know, service happening in, in the U.S., they may have had, you know, 50% or, or 60% or less of their business onshore, um, you know, at a, <clears throat> an average cost of, you know, $35 an hour when you put in all your expenses. Uh, it's unbearable. When you can outsource to, to the nearshore markets for half of that, um, it's more beneficial for, for them to do that, to continue servicing their customers and, and, um, and provide a level of service for a cheaper cost. And you're beginning to see those opportunities already. So you've already had the expansion in St. Lucia. What type of expansion plans are you looking at for Jamaica, if any? 
So we have um, we have an eighty thousand square foot building under construction right now that we intend to get uh, access to that in in May of this year to build out. So by midsummer, we'll be able to put uh, just over a thousand employees into that building, uh, and there may be a chance that we add a second building of that size in Kingston to continue to grow ITEL in Jamaica. What do you see as the biggest threat to the industry, though? Um, capacity. You know, we need to continue to build capacity in Jamaica. When I say capacity, that human capital capacity. Um, we need to continue developing and upskilling our, our, our Jamaicans so that we can provide different types of services. I'm not going to use the, the buzzword like, everyone said, the higher value services. You know, I, I, I'm using the word different type of, services and diversify our services so right now it may be just call center of answering the phones but you can also do call center work by doing emails you can do call center work by doing online you can do call center work by answering social media responses you can do you can do accounting you can do legal you can do design um, there's so many there's so many avenues in this in this business that we can actually go into so i think diversifying our, our um, portfolio, because right now we're about 70% contact center. And if we can even drop that to you know 60 or 55% while increasing the other higher value services and diversifying Jamaica's portfolio, I think it's going to be a benefit to, to everyone and make it a, a even more sustainable business than it is today. Right. So I heard you mention legal and accounting, for example. I've heard the term or the phrase being used, KPO, knowledge process outsourcing. So that would be able to offer those types of services, even design, you said, because everything can be done virtually now. Uh, but the Absolutely. capacity, the capacity, you say, is the issue. So, so how long do you think it would take to be able to build that capacity here in Jamaica so that you could start offering those types of higher value services? So the capacity has already started being built. Um, we just need to, 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 to fast forward that now, given the pandemic. Um, so, you know, you do have companies that are providing some of those value, higher value services. Like I said, about 30% of the overall um, industry is providing those types of KPO services, as, as you're mentioning. So, you know, our goal is to increase that by another 15, 20%. Um, you know, those services don't provide as much jobs on a numbers basis as the call center jobs, but they do provide, you know, greater opportunities for those call center agents to grow into those roles and to better themselves and their careers over time. But you would need specific training for those jobs because accounting is not, you have to go to school well, yeah. for it, so get when you get into, for example. Yeah, when you get into accounting and, and legal and stuff like that, you need specific skill sets for that right. but when you talk about you know social media and and um you know online advertising buying and graphic design and you know those mm -hmm. types of services those those are you know easy things that you can train but they're higher value because you charge a customer more therefore you can pay the, the employee more for the work that they're doing how is it different than me signing up for say a fiverr or upwork there's so many freelancers online that offer those skills through those types of websites fiverr and, and those freelance websites they, they end up outsourcing a lot of that work as well too so some of it may be individual some of it may be specific to a company that's providing that service to them 
Um, so, you know, you, you can have that um, in those areas as well, too. Well, all the best, Yanni, with ITEL BPO. I wish you much success. Thank you. And same too. I know, I know you've gone off on your own and, and, and um, you're, you're officially an entrepreneur. So congratulations officially. to you on that. And all the very best to you as well. Thank you. I'm Yanni Epstein. Let's get this money. <laughs> yes. Up next, we've got your market recap and the analysts are standing by. This segment of Taking Stock was brought to you by Bulwark Insurance Agent, insurance made easy, and Massey United Insurance. How good is your insurance? Time now for your market recap, brought to you by Sagicor Investments. Think wealth, think Sagicor Investments. The Jamaica Stock Exchange advanced, with the combined index gaining almost 1%. 101 stocks traded across both the main and the junior markets of the JSC for the week ending Friday, January 29, 2020. 54 advanced, 40 declined, and 7 stayed the same. Nearly 120 million shares changed hands on the Jamaican dollar market, totaling nearly $611 million. Wigton Wind Farm Ordinary Shares traded the most, taking up nearly 26% of market volume. The stock remained unchanged to open the week at 74 cents. Derriman Trading Company traded at the second highest, with people buying and selling 26 million shares in the company. The stock gained 12 cents to open the week at $2.50. And Trans Jamaican Highway rounded out the most traded, taking up nearly 10% of market volume. The stock remained unchanged to close last week at $1.35. Now let's see who had the biggest gains. JMMB Group 7.25% jumped 24% to close last week at $1.86. Dolphin Cove rose nearly 18% to close last week at $8. And rounding off the biggest gains, Epley's 8.25 stock advanced nearly 17% to open this week at $7. On the losing side now, Iron Rock Insurance Company fell nearly 23% to close last week at $3.10. Consolidated Bakers Jamaica fell nearly 20% to end last week at $1.32 a share. Rounding off the biggest losers, Portland JSX lost nearly 15% and was the biggest loser for January. The stock ended the month down $7.10. Now here's a quick look at some of the highlights for the month of January. The main index declined by almost 2%. The junior market advanced by nearly 5%. The financial index lost nearly 3%. JMMB Group 7.25% VRJMDCR preference shares came out on top as January's biggest gain, its stock up 54%. Jamaican Tees was second, its stock up by nearly 47% to close January at $2.90. Rounding off the biggest gains for the month of January, Mailpack Group stock advanced nearly 40% to open this new month at $3.89. Radio Jamaica was the second biggest loser, its stock price down 20% to close January at $1.36. And Palace Amusement Company was third, down 19% to start this new month February at $1,050.50. Market Recap was brought to you by Sagicor Investments. Think wealth, think Sagicor Investments. This segment of Taking Stock, The Analysts, is brought to you by Jamaica Money Market Brokers and Proven Wealth. 
Welcome back to Taking Stock. I've got a team of analysts to examine the week in business. I'm joined by investment research and sovereign risk analyst at JMMB Group, Leovani Dillon, investment analyst at Proven Wealth, Julian Morrison, and business writer at The Observer, David Rose. Hey guys, how are you guys doing? Oh my goodness. So everybody's looking forward to this segment today because all the talk has been about GameStop and Robin Hood and it's been quite an interesting week on the stock markets in the United States. So you guys need to break it all down and tell us what the heck is going on. David, let's start with you. All right, so yeah, with the typical game game seller, GameStop, which you know sells the consoles, the cartridges, all the quote unquote game paraphernalia that is for persons who want to entertain themselves. So GameStop has been you know trading below right now at around like probably like four dollars last year because you know COVID kind of killed their in physical sales which they needed, and the thing is most games are coming downloaded, so. Yeah, these Wall Street firms were saying that, hey, this company is going to fail. So they're taking what you call a short position. So I've discussed shorting before, but okay. For simple terms, and to make a simple reference, somebody made an example. So let's just say you go to a car dealership and you say you took a car for a test drive. You take that car, sell it, and say $100. Let's just say you find that car, looks similar exactly and everything, and you buy it from somebody that's $50. They carry back the car to the dealer and you return it and keep the difference for your $50. So shorting is basically instead of you buying low and selling high, which is what we typically know in a regular stock market, you're selling high and buying back low and you're keeping the difference. So when you're shorting a stock, you're expecting the stock to go down. So you had this very large float on Wall Street in the hedge funds, which were saying like it's going to go down, it's going to fail or whatever. And you had this great character, which you've all seen in the movie, The Big Short, Michael Burry, who took a position in GameStop. Because what turned out actually happened is that persons realized that there was short interest over 150%, meaning that there were more short persons shorting the stock than there were shorts actually available. And what ended up happening was on Reddit. Reddit was like, hey, let's actually buy up this stock because they saw what was happening. So they did, they did lock uh, options, calls, and they also you know, bought the stock regularly. Let's stick to so, it right there, David. So how is that possible? Can any of you explain how it's possible that there can be more people shorting the stock than stocks that are actually available? Is this a first, Julian, as far as you're aware? I don't know if it's a first, but it's definitely an, ir- an irregularity. It's not something that happens uh, on a daily basis in terms of the over, the, the, the excessive positioning in terms of the, the the position being larger than the float. That is irregular. It's not supposed to be. Because whenever an investor takes a position, I want to say position, I mean a long position, meaning an upside bet, or a short position, which is a downside bet, there has to be the liquidity to back it. So in other words, for that position to materialize, so to speak, for it to happen, um, a third party has to guarantee that there is money there for the winner, whoever the winner is, the person who won the upside bet or the person who won the downside bet. However, whenever there's a scenario where the position is larger than the float, it means that liquidity comes into question. So given that somebody is correct or the winner um, is supposed to get their prize, 
how are you going to supply that liquidity to allow it to materialize? So that is where the major risk factor comes into play. All right, we have the background set as to what's going on, but how Robin Hood and Reddit jump in now? What's going on, Leo? All right, so Robin Hood, right? It's a relatively new company. Um, what it did, its claim to fame, is that it really made investing available to the average man on the street very easily. The key to it doing so was that it dropped commissions to zero. It, didn't cost, it doesn't cost money to buy and sell stuff on the platform, right? Because of that now, a lot of persons, you know, retail investors gravitated to it. Um, and then... So how do they really- make money if they don't All have right, so a commission? It's actually quite interesting, and that's part of the controversy. How do they make money is that they sell the orders that flow through them to hedge funds. So in the United States, the majority of the volumes that you see buying and selling on the stock market is not actually individuals. It's actually machines buying and selling the thing, like software programs, right? like over 70% of the volume. So what happens is that these are like the high-frequency traders, buy and sell a security like, thousands, like a thousand times in like a second. Right? Now, when they're making those high-frequency trades, they make very small amount of profits on these trades, sometimes like a cent, two cents. So what happens is that if I go in to buy a stock, so let's say I'm going in to buy a stock and I put it in at $10. Now, to buy at market, $10, right? What happens is that that order kind of gets routed to these high-frequency trader guys that will buy it from you, that will sell it to you, for example, for that one for, for, for that $10, and then they might go back into the market now and then buy it back the same position that's a little bit cheaper. So they make a little spread. And they might do the opposite way in the sense that somebody going to the, into the trading app to sell a share, they now would actually take that order. So they'd go in and then that actually basically be on the other side of that transaction of a small spread, right? So that's how the hedge fund or the high-frequency traders would make their money. And then they would pay Robinhood something for access to those that order book, right? So it's really just like some, it's, it's, it's really sense, but basically a lot of cents and dollars and then it piles up and then it becomes big money. So that's what Robinhood makes this money. So that's part of the reason why the controversy, because what persons are saying is that the reason why Robinhood now halted um, the sale, preventing persons basically from buying new stock is because they were trying to appease the hedge fund guys. Because remember, these persons that are running up, um, GameStop, it's costing the hedge fund managers a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, because they're basically, you know, they basically get a lot of money from this industry, from Wall Street, because they sell the other book to them. The thing is, is that they're trying to appease them on the other side. That's the, the take that a lot of retail investors feel as to why they did what they did. In terms of well, the, mes- the official word, the official message that they sent to their clients was that we're doing this to protect you. Basically. You, yes. So that's the official message. Now, when I listen to their point um, as to why they do it, basically it has to do with how volatile the stock is. It causes them to put up more money in clearing houses. Basically third parties to guarantee that whoever is on the other side of the trade, similar to what Julian was talking about, gets payment, right? Now, the more volatile the market is, the bigger the money that you have to put up. Reason being, of course, it makes sense is that if volatility on the market is relatively low, then for argument's sake, the chances of somebody gaining or losing, say, $1,000 in a given time span is a certain probability. When volatility goes up a lot, is that that probability might expand out to like millions of dollars. So because of that, they have to put up more money to guarantee that despite 
how the market might move, you, the person on the other side of the transaction, will get paid. Now, doing that, of course, puts a liquidity crunch on the company. Now, according to them, it's not that they're at that limit, but the thing is they're trying to basically get ahead of it. So they don't want to be at that limit. So they gave a good reason as to why they did what they did. But of course, you know, a lot of persons not going by it because, of course, it's how the industry structure. Mm-hmm. So persons are going to look at that side of the thing <laughs> and then run with that narrative. So then there's this conflicting narrative between what they say and what persons basically put together based on the dynamics of the industry. So, so that's what creating the, 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 the I mean, the, you know, the back and forth there. And I saw where, you know, all of this drama actually sent uh, GameStop's valuation just soaring. They're sitting up high there next to Apple and Tesla. How is no, that well, possible, David? Well, they're sitting on the, on the thrones of giants. They're probably among the S&P 5, sorry, among the Fortune 500 companies in terms of valuation. But really and truly, I'm going to explain this now. So it's something called a short squeeze. So here's the thing about it. If the stock goes down, when you're in a stock, you make money. However, if it goes up, you're on the hook to buy back that stock at a higher price, return it to your broker, and take a loss. The problem with shorting is that your, your gains and losses are limitless. So on the same on the same coin, if you begin stock went from $12 to like $1, you are making some good coin. When it went from $12, $8, you're on the hook to pay $68 per, more share, per share extra just to return it back to the broker. Mm-hmm. And remember, there's a cost to actually uh, shorting a stock. You have to actually pay the broker money to actually borrow the stock as well. So what ended up happening was that regular retail investors and even some probably hedge funds as well as to point to the stock based on this, this demand. And what happened was that persons had to short close in their short positions. Look at what happened. When your short position goes in the other direction for you, what happens is that the broker is going to say, hey, we need more collateral. Because when person use short stocks, use margin, which is the broker's money. So it's basically a loan. So I have a loan and I have a price going to assets put up against that actual loan, basically. If the promotion is going against me, the broker is going to be like, hey, put my money up, we're going to close the position. So what happened was that persons were basically forced to actually exit their positions, which ended up generating the stock price higher. Because remember, that's actually buying the stock at a higher price just to pay back the broker, which would further add more demand to the overall demand supply situation. And here's the thing about it. This hedge fund, which is part of this controversy as well, was Melvin Capital. So Melvin Capital, they ended up with massive losses. Like on Tuesday, they had taken a $2.75 billion capital injection from uh, Citadel. And the thing is, that went poof. Like it wasn't enough to actually clear the losses. Like Citadel's actual... Uh, losses actually surpassed the overall asset worth to show you how that significant spike from GameStop from like $12 going upwards to around $450, $500 really shows the danger of shorting in one sense. Melvin Capital actually is he, actually filed for bankruptcy. So imagine the small little guys ganging together and killing a Wall Street guy. And the thing is, Melvin Capital is actually still a capital and still actually is one of the companies that actually buys order from Robin Hood. So you see where all these countries are getting more and more interesting. And the thing is, Robin wasn't only actually restricted clients from actually buying or interesting stocks. The thing is, some brokers like TD Ameritrade, they said, hey, if you're using margin or whatever, increasing the margin requirements and so on, but when it's actually a block from buying or selling the stock. 
But if you're going to use margin, you have to play by our rules and our increased requirements. And even the Nasdaq CEO said that they're actually going to start halting stocks on the market based on social media chatter. So imagine Nasdaq CEO saying, hey, we're going to halt stocks just because they talk so much about it. So BlackBerry, Nokia, AMC, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, all these legacy companies we know coming up from the 2000s coming up now, they're just like crazy creating value. And I know what's happening is that all the who are quote-unquote trusting these quote-unquote terrible companies that are supposed to fail are having to exit the position at significant losses. So Walsh right now, for the week so far, has worked up like about $70 billion losses worth of losses just because of the short positions that went south against them. So, so who came out the winners in all of this, Julian? Were there any winners? Well, there would be savvy investors who would be able to play the dynamics. But for instance, so there are some people who would have anticipated the fact that there's a chance that the stock would have broken out to higher levels this morning. Um, because the prior day, there was the, the, the freeze on the ability to buy the stock. So there would have been pent up demand because so many news articles would have been released saying that essentially the people are winning against a hedge fund. So that's going to increase the level of optimism and increase more buy-side demand. And remember, there are only so many shares available at a time to, 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 to move against or to bet against. So that would push the stock higher. Now, some of those individuals would be able to benefit, especially the people who are able to jump in and jump out. However, the individuals who are in the position holding the stock for a perpetual period they are at a certain level of risk because none of this is backed by fundamentals. It's all momentum. So in other words, the flow of information, news articles, what people are saying online, those things can turn the tides very quickly in seconds and it can make people vulnerable to extreme losses if they are not careful. So the people who are able to jump in and jump out and time the momentum a particular way, they are the ones who would, who would have been able to take profits and get out. So was it an accurate representation to say the small man was winning against the big man? Well, the truth is, Kalila, I would say the savvy investor is winning regardless of their size because there are small investors who are savvy, who are on their laptops, who are able to jump in and out, as I just described. But there are other factors at play that are not as simplistic as one would would be led to believe based on banter on social media. For example, the principle of a short squeeze is not new. There is a battle between Carl Icahn and Bill Ackman over Herbalife stock some years ago. And essentially what happened is that Herbalife has some questionable business practices. So Bill Ackman shorted the stock because he's saying that the stock is virtually not worth anything. So he has a downside bit. Carl Icahn saw this position, learned of it, and then moved against it. So he took the opposite side of the bet. And he, he also allegedly coerced other large investors to move against Bill and force him out of his position because the, 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 the stock price kept on rising. And he, has to he, he being Bill Ackman, had to close out his position as a result. So Bill Ackman was a loser. Carl Icahn was a winner. However, in a situation like this, there are so many people jumping in, jumping in and out, some at the wrong time, so to speak. There are people who are watching the price, they're putting in their orders. And because of the volatility, there are so many 
new investors, the investors who aren't so experienced, who aren't able to take advantage of the volatility, who are taking a hit under the quiet. And, and those people are the ones tweeting. And because a platform like Robinhood makes it so easy to do it on your own, you see all these trades coming in, all these orders coming in. There are many people who are silently being hurt. And when this whole hullabaloo is over and the momentum recedes, the price is also going to recede. So it's likely that other people are going to be hurt in the future too. By the way, are any of you guys on Reddit? That's the platform where people basically... <laughs> well, not necessarily, but I'm, I'm missing the screenshots. That's, that's and... where all of this started, right? So it's a platform yes. where people basically discuss stocks trading and that sort of thing. And well, yeah. that's where all the chatter about GameStop started. Yeah, yeah. well, Reddit is a fairly broad um, community of persons. So there's a subreddit um, that is really what drove all of this stuff. Yeah, so it's not no over already. Already they discuss a, a wide range of things. And that's yeah. just so, yeah, because people discuss like CFA study tips on Reddit as well. Yeah. Right. It's just like a chat room almost. So right. I was just, I was going to point out one thing. Kalila was that it's referring to Wall Street bets. That's where it started, and it's actually one person on Wall Street bets who said, "Hey, guys, get on this," and he actually turned fifty k into twenty two million dollars. And you have persons who are on that same thread, on that same subreddit thread, saying, "Hey, I paid my student loans off. I even saw Jamaican who took a game position like a thousand dollars last year, ten dollars. That's worth more than thirty thousand US dollars now. When I'm uh, half, when I'm uh, when I'm family and JMB. So there are some serious winners in this whole situation, but." As Julian said, we don't know how it's going to play out to the end because right now, Risky. the White House got involved because even a congressperson has written to Attorney General investigate Robin Hood and it's not going to end well without what's going on right now. And then, so, so Leo, short selling actually isn't allowed on the Jamaica Stock Exchange. Uh, why is that and do you think it should be? All right, all right. So there's a... All right, it's currently not on the stock exchange, right? All right, what? It requires a certain kind of um, mechanism in order to make it work, the whole system, because you have to borrow the stock, sell it, and there's different ways in order to implement um, how you get access to the stock to sell. Major, I think the, the major reason why it's not on the market right now and there is no push for it is because there is a perception that if you allow short selling, all stocks or most stocks are going to tank in value and then you're going to have basically persons losing a lot of network, right? Now, that's interesting that you asked that question because I think this GameStop thing shows the worst case, but it also shows that it also shows another side to the story. So what the, the, the whole GameStop thing shows is that if you do this, it can create excess volatility in extreme situation. But excess volatility is kind of not new to this local stock market that you've seen stocks move like 70% in a couple of days. So you, it's not as big as GameStop, but it's big movement, right? Now, aside from that, the thing is that it shows is that short selling can actually cause a stock to rally significantly, which, of course, what you see because of the short squeeze that um, David um, explained how that worked, right? So because of that, you're creating a dynamic here with the short selling where you can actually create vibrancy in the market. Because how the local market is right now, you can only express long positions. So if you look on a broad range of stocks, right? Let's say you look on 50 stocks, you analyze them, whatever, you come to a conclusion. And you realize that only five of them really worth buying. And you see 10 of them or 20 of them that are highly overvalued. You have no way of really expressing that view. 
you just have to wait until either the valuation catches up in terms of the company performs well enough that the valuation actually start makes sense, or you wait for it to drop, which is usually slow, right? That's how it usually is on these companies. What short selling would do is that the valuations would instantly more aligned because persons will take advantage of the fact that it's highly overpriced and probably do a short sell in order to realize a profit from that and then drive down the price to, to values that make sense quickly, right? And then it readjusts and then the stocks start trading from there. Now, looking at the, the developed market of short selling, perfect case like the US market, there is no evidence that it creates excess um, lower valuation. So if you look on the valuation of some companies like Tesla, um, Amazon, even Apple right now, it's fairly expensive, about 30 at times earnings now. I was like 40 at times earnings before they reported um, the recent numbers, which were very good. You're seeing that valuations are not really cheap in these um, um, markets, despite the fact that you have short selling. A matter of fact, I might put it to you in a short saying, overall, I think will probably help the overall health of the market. Because what it can help prevent is things getting too over um, getting too expensive. So for example, if you look on some stocks that you might say you're only buying for dividend and then the dividend yield goes down to like 1% and you know, sometimes even less than 1%, then the value proposition as an income investor kind of drops. Maybe if you had short selling, what would happen is that it would contain some of those prices and then the dividend yield would probably make sense. Now, again, and this is the reason I don't think short selling would necessarily get out of hand in the local market. This is, this is my view on it. It's because I think persons would look at things like what happened with this GameStop situation. And I think stuff like that would keep persons in check to prevent persons from getting over-exuberant with short selling. But it does carry elevated level of risk, but there's there ways that you can regulate it and manage it just like anything else in order to make sure that it don't go out of hand. But I think overall it would help liquidity because instead of only expressing positive views persons can express a negative view on something, which I think in of itself can provide value in terms of keeping valuations in check and don't let them run rampant. So, yeah, so there's a mixed feeling to it. Some persons feel like it's going to totally destroy value um, um, based on what I've seen in more developed markets. I don't see destroying value because I see these markets are performing very well. They still have high valuation companies. So, yeah, so, you know, there's two sides to this. But mm -hmm. I'm more of the view that I think overall it would increase liquidity and make the market more vibrant if managed well. If so managed we, have well. A, we have a couple other things on the local scene to go over before we wrap. So Salada Foods has, well, the stock split has been approved, so to speak. And we also have Jamaica producers looking towards acquisitions for 2021. Uh, David, last time you spoke on Salada, so tell me what's going on with JP. So Jamaica producers, you know, they sold their stake in SAJE and collected $1.7 billion in a, in a, again on sale, but $1.9 billion in cash. And they're going to use that cash to actually uh, put, put it to productive use this year in acquisitions between both the juice and snacks division and the logistics division as well. So what you saw in last year was that in after COVID kind of really took its play in, like, in call it around April, after June, in the third quarter, you really start to express depression in the value of the snacks division, whereby because there is no less uh, sales to tourism is torture, you have the St. Mary Banner, which is basically in consumption moments, you know, better on the roadside, go to the market and get to in school, 
you know, even the, the European juice business kind of taking a because it's a supply chain disruptions in a sense. So you kind of saw that hit in a sense for the for the snack and juice division. But the thing is, as Jeffrey expressed, the subsidiaries are still strong and, and they can take care of themselves. But the company is saying that hey, COVID printed an opportunity for us to capitalize on the environment. So there's still a subsidiary, we still have export trade through Kingston Wars to so keep an airport exposure. And let us just uh, continue to see how we can expand the business because JP is a company that does acquisitions, mainly or mergers. They had the time, the last major they would know for JP was with Simco, where they saw 30% of their uh, Caribbean snacks business to Simco, and Simco paid a significant price for it as well. While on top of that, making it was going to distribute it as well because they sent me banana chips or different products. So for JP, this is you know a good opportunity for them to continue to grow their balance and share equity. Because the company itself hasn't really been looked at by most in the market, but hey, a company continue to grow. Who's complaining? And we're going to have to leave it there this week, guys. Very interesting discussion and, and case study. I think this is going to be one for the books that people will look back at and point yeah, at and cite as an example uh, I, for years to come. Uh, can you look at this as name too? Very uh, so quickly. JS, so JSC actually didn't have trust in it before because of the platform. So Mr. Shreve said that with the NASA platform now, they can't even make sure selling, but it's just to develop the guidance or regulations as uh, Levon highlighted earlier. Right. I recall she did tell me that last year late i think december 2019 she, she mentioned it all right guys thanks again this segment of taking stock the analysts was brought to you by jamaica money market brokers and proven wealth That's our show for this week. Thanks for watching. Make sure you like this video, subscribe to this channel and share with a friend. Also subscribe to our newsletter at kalilareynolds.com and turn on those post notifications so that you can be the first to see all of my other features. We want to help people learn more about money so we can all get this money together. Now this week on Money Mondays JA, we're talking about upsizing an offer. What does that mean and how does it affect you as a shareholder? And on Money Moves JA, we're talking about leadership with Dr. Knut Thompson dropping some gems left, right and center. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Kalila Ray and follow at Taking Stock JA on Instagram. If you want to connect with the analysts this week, check the description box below for their contact information. Also visit our website, kalilareynolds.com for financial information you can use however you like it. Watch, listen or read. Now tell a friend about taking stock. Investing is the news. Sexy. So let's make it cool to talk about money. I'm Kalila Reynolds. Stay safe. Let's get this money. <laughs>